Voice of Fintech. Welcome to Voice of Fintech, a podcast mapping out the Swiss and global fintech scene, connecting fintech enthusiasts with startups, incubators, accelerators, business angels and VCs, and incumbents interested in partnerships. Voice of Fintech will help you navigate the fintech ecosystem. Here you can listen to the startup founder stories, what investors and incumbents are looking for when dealing with startups, and find out more about resources provided by incubators and accelerators. My name is Rudy Fallad and I'll be hosting this podcast. Hello and welcome to Voice of Fintech. Today we're joined by Alistair, who is the head of insights at uh, Adapar, which is a major, major fintech company in the wealth management space in the United States uh, that provides the technology behind what actually the financial advisors or wealth managers need. We're going to find out more what's cooking behind the scenes. How do financial advisors or investment advisors actually work to get the best out of your money for you and uh, how they can do it in a more intelligent way in the 21st century. So, Alistair, how are you today? I'm good, thank you. Great to uh, great to chat with you again, Rudy. Great. So, nice to reconnect. Uh, so, can you tell the listeners about yourself? How did you get to what you do, you know, being head of insights at Adapar in New York? Sure, happy to do it. I'm Canadian and I started my career in Toronto with uh, McKinsey and Company as a consultant. I spent several years there and then um, moved to New York again with McKinsey to focus more on uh, financial services clients. So I spent about 10 or 11 years with McKinsey uh, overall. And uh, I decided um, in 2005 that I was looking to, um, I'd spent a lot of time consulting with wealth managers and asset managers and wanted to get more directly into the industry. So I took an opportunity uh, to join a hedge fund in the uh, distressed debt investing space, spent a couple of years there, and then ended up uh, joining Credit Suisse uh, in New York um, and spent almost 10 years there. And really, uh, you and I obviously worked together uh, for some time there. In my time at Credit Suisse, I worked both in um, the asset management division as well as on the wealth management side and had a number of different roles, but uh, always, I would say, um, strategy and product oriented. And one of the things that was that I found frustrating about working at uh, at Credit Suisse, even though um, you know I was in a I was in a relatively senior position, and even though we had a huge technology budget as a firm, it was so challenging to actually make the um, technology investments or that we all saw that we needed to do to upgrade the sort of technology platform that we had, right. because we had so much legacy um, and such a huge tech debt that even though the budget was big, it all went off on these sort of regulatory programs and and uh, kind of requirements to fix things that weren't working. So you really didn't have any money left over to build anything new. And, and it was always a source of frustration for me that even though we were this you know, big global bank, fourth biggest uh, uh, global bank, uh, private bank in the world at that time. And, you know, we, we still had technology that just didn't look as good as some of the consumer applications you'd see here in, in, the, in the U.S. And um, so when I, when I left Credit Suisse, I was really looking for a way to be part of the future of the industry. And I really felt that technology was going to be the key to that. So I was looking for a firm that had, um, that really put technology first, that, that had sort of the, the budget, the spending, the knowledge and the focus that was really going to start with the technology as opposed to sort of ending with it, which was a little bit how it felt when I was when I was at, uh, at uh, CS. Um, and that's really uh, what led me to Adapar. So Alistair, you're the head of insights at Adapar. So what does that mean? What is your team's mandate? 
Sure. Uh, well, we um, we were uh, set up a couple of years ago um, to try to uh, really extend what Adapar offers from reporting, which is really uh, more of a backwards view, if you want to think of it that way, um, kind of what's already happened, um, and try to provide our clients with some ideas and help on a forward view. So as they think about what type of investments um, they might want to make, uh, on behalf of their clients, how can we help them? Uh, you know, with that process, and um, and really, uh, our team has two mandates. Uh, one is around insights, as you said, and the other one is around um, an application called Marketplace. And the idea behind insights is how can we um, use the the data that we have because we're such a big platform, we see so many things that come through us. How can we aggregate that data and um, give it to our clients in a way that allows them to see what others are doing, um, create peer and benchmark analytics, um, and and identify opportunities that either they want to take or, or maybe not take, um, but at least give them transparency on how the rest of our platform is thinking about particular clients' asset allocation um, or particular flows into or out of certain asset classes or products. So there, the insights is really, how do we help our clients, the, the advisors, um, be better at their job, and 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 that's that's the purpose of that team. And um, the first product that we've launched in that area is called the Investor Sentiment Index, the ISI. You can find it on our our website at adapar.com if you're interested. And it's really a real time metric that measures um, our investors' risk appetite by showing um, the number of investors that are net buyers versus net sellers um, on a particular day. And it, we we do it um, we we calculate it daily. Uh, and we report it weekly to our clients, and then we kind of publish it monthly um, for anyone to look at. But it, it's quite interesting because it's the only th- the only index that we know of that represents, um, you know, over two trillion dollars worth of high and ultra high net worth investors on a real time basis, and it gives you a sense of um, what uh, whether they're in aggregate risk on or risk off, and uh, what they're investing in and what they're divesting from. So we were able to show people. What sectors are hot? What are not? What stocks are hot and not? And we can do all that on a effectively on a daily basis. So that that's kind of step one. And we have a lot of things in the hopper um, that we want to develop further. And then on on the marketplace side, um, our goal there is really to provide people access to um, unique products that they may not be able to see on their own, uh, and make the experience of transacting more digital and. We believe that given our size and the number of clients in the network that we have, we're able to um, offer people access to particular private funds or private securities that they otherwise couldn't get by nature of our size and scale, uh, and that we can then offer this in our in our marketplace in a more digital way. So it's partly about access to product and partly about uh, a more digital experience. So that's really what our team is uh, is focused on. Right. I mean, of course, it makes sense. So... What is Adepar? I mean, let's level set, right? I mean, a lot of people in America know you, but uh, let's focus on the people that are not converted yet, uh, right? <laughs> sure, happy to. So um, Adepar uh, was founded in 2009, so about 11 years ago, um, in Silicon Valley. And its mission is, uh, put very broadly, to bring um, data, people, and technology together to optimize uh, how capital is put to work. Um which is a pretty broad, um, a pretty broad vision, as you can imagine. Um, and if you want to think of us in the ecosystem, we are um, a considered an enterprise SaaS company, which which means that our clients are businesses, um, not individuals. And uh, you know, we offer a cloud-based software solution to our clients who are who are primarily wealth managers. Um, 
Uh, Adapar was founded by Joe Lonsdale, who is also a co-founder of Palantir, which I suspect many of your listeners will have heard of. And actually, um, he had left Palantir to found Adapar in 2009. Um, and so we have a certain, I would say, data-driven analytic heritage that comes from that that kind of you know initial founding. And, and Joe is still you know our chairman, and I think he's still our larger shareholder, very actively involved in in driving uh, driving the vision here. Um, the narrow problem that Adapar is trying to solve is that it's very difficult as an investor to get an aggregated view of your holdings and your performance. Um, data in, in, this, in this industry is typically kept in many places with many banks. Um, if you are holding alternatives or private assets, these are, based, these are fundamentally different than public securities. They require a different data model. Um, and finally, um, the ownership structure for a lot of our clients can be quite complex, uh, especially as you get wealthier. And so this, this problem of data aggregation, what do I own and how am I doing, um, is particularly acute for wealthy individuals because they're the ones who tend to have more assets at more banks, more private assets, ownership. So um, you know, this was really built, uh, Adapar is really purpose-built to try and solve this problem of data aggregation uh, and reporting. And there's really three parts to that. One is we have uh, data feeds from nearly 300 financial firms bringing in um, uh, information that we can aggregate it. Two, we have a flexible data model that incorporates every type of asset and ownership structure out there. And three, we have a digital reporting platform that allows investment professionals or advisors to create um, high-quality custom reporting packages on the fly. So it's data aggregation, flexible data model, and a very flexible and customizable reporting platform. Understood. So who are your key clients? And uh, also, who are their end clients, right? Because I understand that you are a B2B fintech, if I were to put you in labels. So who are they serving in the end? Are these retail customers or affluent or just ultra-networth and high-networth who... You know, of course, the, the there have been solutions that you describe, uh, not perfect ones, of course, around portfolio management, things like this. But I think where the problem always used to be in illiquid stocks or illiquid holdings, right? And uh, so, is that the is that the what you do, or is that uh, you cover all of these uh, scenarios I mentioned? Yeah. So well, our clients are at this point primarily wealth managers and and professional advisors. So we have more than 500 family offices, uh, independent wealth managers, and private banks that are our clients around the world. So as you said, our clients are our other businesses, and I would say they tend to be the larger and more sophisticated independent wealth managers because our value add comes through more clearly when you have larger and more complex investors. Right. And so so our clients are the, the wealth managers and then their clients are sort of individuals in and typically they are they are you know high or ultra high net worth individuals. So I'd say the vast majority of our asset base uh, is owned or uh, is is owned by um, people with uh, with a net worth of you know 10 million plus. So that's really who the end clients are here. Right. Makes sense. So let's just dig into it a little bit more. So what is your unique advantage, right? So if you are a wealth manager, why should we use you and not someone else? And do you think that all the incumbents there have that technology debt that, uh, and legacy infrastructure that they cannot um, do it themselves? They need to go externally and uh, use a B2B company like yours. Yeah, well, most most of the larger financial firms uh, were, have built up the ability to report on the assets that they manage for you or that they hold for you. So if you bank with only one bank, then your chances are pretty good. That but, but let's hope that they can report back to you on on what they're managing on your behalf. Oh, I see. Yeah. Um, the challenge. Yeah, the challenge really comes that 
many wealthy individuals will have accounts with multiple firms, and they may also have and they may also own private assets that aren't custody at a firm. A great example would be a private equity uh, investment, where if it's directly in a company or or in a fund, those are typically not actually really custodied in any way. So, uh, so the problem that and the challenge that you have as a wealthy individual or an advisor serving one is that you may have accounts at four, five, six, seven. Uh, different banks. Uh, so you have to find a way to bring them all into a common uh, place. And then you also have the problem that your client may have a lot of assets that aren't held at any bank. And so you have to find a way to incorporate those into a um, into kind of a unified view. So, so that's really what Adapar was purpose-built to do. It's designed to, on the first hand, take take in data from, at this point, around 300 different financial institutions where we are able to pull data every day on what those clients hold and ingest it. And and we have a whole operations and data team that makes sure that data comes in correctly. And then we also have a, um, a unified data model that allows us to incorporate both public and private assets and report back in any way that you want so that you can kind of properly model some of these illiquid assets that, as you said, are historically more challenging. And then and finally, we have the ability to model more complex ownership structures. Most financial institutions will report back on a sort of single account basis. But once you start to have um, families with accounts that have multiple beneficiaries or perhaps multiple layers where a holding company owns several things beneath it, that becomes very challenging for a traditional financial services firm to model. But Adapar was sort of purpose-built to, to handle that. So it can easily handle more complex structures. And then and then finally, it's got a very customizable reporting platform on the, um, on the back end, which allows you as an advisor to design your report kind of on the fly to customize for whatever your particular client wants to do. We can make a look, we can make a, a look a lot more visually appealing than some of the things you might see from the more kind of standard um, applications you'd get from a typical larger firm. So it, it's it's really around the um, the data aggregation and our ability to pull data in, the ability to model everything flexibly, and then the um, the flexible reporting solution on the um, on the back end. That's really the, that at the core of what Webapar offers, and that's really what's kind of unique. And then of course we also have the ability to offer um, analytics on your portfolio. So once you've kind of got it in there and it's modeled correctly. Now you can slice and dice it however you need to to uh, uh, to manage the book for your client. Right, and the point is, it's uh, you know it's the assets spread out over multiple institutions, right? That's exactly right. Yeah, I I, I would say if you had a uh, an individual who only had one account with one bank, Adapar would probably be somewhat less useful. So so that's why you know, but that just it turns out wealthy people almost never do that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I guess nobody would ever do it. Uh, hopefully, but fair enough. Even if you have deposit insurance and all that still. That's right. So, that's right. Um, so obviously, you are a great example of uh, innovation in the wealth management space. Some people call it wealth tech, right? Mm-hmm. So what's your view on the long-term prospects of wealth tech? You know, it's a good question. I, I think there was a famous phrase by Mark Andreessen, I think, almost 10 years ago, about said something about software is eating the world, uh, which I think was this sort of you know way of saying that um, technology and software is really going to change everything. And, and I think that's definitely true in wealth management. I, I actually think that in some ways, the use of technology is probably not as far ahead as it has been in you know other um, other spaces. And so I think there's really a long way to go to continue to um, to see how we can use technology to enhance, you know, the advisor's job, um, take out right. routine tasks, and enhance the client experience. So I, I think the long-term prospects there, I think, are really good. Certainly, we saw during the pandemic 
last year, all these trends around remote work and, and, you know, kind of use of technology in your business that I think everybody saw, you know, we saw that as well. It was the best year ever for us in terms of our new clients and new sales, which, you know, you could sort of say, wow, global pandemic. We're like, yep, that was our best year ever. Because I think people realized that, uh, you know, that the, the technology was just more and more important. And I think also uh, in wealth tech specifically, that we're beginning to see a certain maturation in the industries, at least here in the US, where clients are beginning to look for a more complete solution where they can have one partner that brings multiple things to them that they can scale with, as opposed to having lots and lots of little providers where they have to stitch it all together. So of course, Adapar being one of those, but one of those platforms, you know, we kind of see ourselves as being one of the longer-term winners uh, in that trend. Great. So, but again, if you step back and look at it um, a little bit more widely, of course, you know, you focus on reporting, data aggregation, the insights, things like this, right? But which areas of wealth tech do you see as the, the as the hardest, you know, in addition to what you do? For example, for this year, I would say, you know, what about um, AI-driven insights, right? So one thing is to to know what the portfolio is doing, to model it, model it, and all that stuff. But what about even more, like generating advice and and uh, ideas to talk to clients using AI rather than just reading the paper? Or uh, you know, I don't know how it was done in the past. Yeah, no. Look, it's it's a great it's a great question. I think I actually think probably the most interesting space at the moment, if I if we're taking a step back, would would be what's going on in the direct investing space. So if you think about Robinhood and the uh, you know the uh, all the excitement around GameStop, which I'm sure I'm sure you and your listeners thought. I mean, it would be hard to miss it in the last couple of months. Uh, yeah. you, know, so, you know how retail investors are suddenly having the ability to move markets in an unprecedented way is just fascinating. And you know what that's going to mean is you know very hard to say. Or or for example, things like Coinbase, which is a I think of as kind of being a retail crypto platform, is going to go um, looking to go public at some unbelievable valuation. And so what. You know what that means for wealth managers. Um, I think in the very near term, not much, because they tend to be quite conservative for all kinds of, I think, good reasons, and so they're not really kind of rushing to put their clients into um, GameStop options or um, or you know the latest crypto offering. But I do think over time it'll be very interesting to see how how that how the, that activity you know potentially changes how wealth managers think about their business. That's a little bit of an aside. I think more specifically to wealth management, one big trend we're seeing is the democratization of alternatives and, and private markets, where there's a view that the private markets are where a lot of the action is in terms of um, investment opportunities, but they're hard to get to. And so there's a lot of, of people trying to figure out how you can make it easier for an individual to get access to and invest in some of these exciting opportunities. And and actually, that's something that at Adapar, we're, we're actively um, getting involved in as well. My, my role here, I run uh, two groups, our marketplace team and our insights team. And on the marketplace side, what we're really doing is trying to figure out how we can help our clients, who are the advisors to wealthy individuals, get better and more digital access to uh, new new investment products. So we're big believers in that trend. And and we're looking to build out our capabilities to help clients there. And I think finally, on, on your point about AI, it is a great, it's a great question. I think there's a lot of interest in how can you apply some of these data science and machine learning techniques to the wealth space. And I, I would agree with you. I think there's a lot of examples in other industries where that's been very powerful. I don't think we've yet seen, or at least I haven't really seen examples where people have yet made a compelling business out of it, but there's a lot of interest in figuring out how you can. So, and, and, and our 
the other team that I, I manage at, at, at APAR Insights is actively exploring that to say, if you can see what investors are doing on our platform, what they're invested in, what they're transacting in, how can you use that information to help give uh, guidance or thoughts to advisors about what they should be doing? Right. Great. Great stuff. You know, maybe I'd like to continue with this a little bit from a different angle. And uh, when you look at private banks or wealth managers, you know, over the last few years, and you know it very well, I mean, of course, the pressure has been on the RMs or relationship managers, or whether you call them investment advisors, etc., to be more productive, right? Um, some private banks discover that, well, you know, we are also called the bank, so we should also give loans in the <laughs> private bank as well. Yes. So they've been doing this and then they've been cutting costs and obviously reorganizing the management layers and things like this. But then what else do you do after you've done all this, right? And for me, what you should do is uh, you should look at uh, Adapar or all others and technology innovation and don't just do the regulatory catch up in, in your IT platform or if that's unfortunately your, you know, where you are then maybe you should look at uh, others to, to partner up with. So uh, where do you think that the wealth egg is in terms of uh, timing of adoption and scaling up? I mean, uh, what I think what, where I'm trying to push you in a way is that to to tell the private banks to to work with wealthy companies, really, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, Rudy, I agree with you, one hundred percent. No, look, it's it's a great it's a great question, and obviously, you know, you and I have both worked at a at a large private bank in the past, so you know, have have a sense of, uh, and I completely agree with with uh, the trends that you've laid out. I think that historically, the view had been in many large financial institutions that you were going to build most of the technology yourself. And there are all kinds of reasons for that. I think some good and maybe some some more, um, maybe some not so good, but but that was sort of the general view. And I, I think what's been happening is it's just becoming increasingly clear that's not going to be sustainable and that whether it's from a cost perspective or a client experience perspective, and I actually think that it's not just about cost, although clearly that's that's a factor. It's also about the quality of, of, of the client experience and, and the advisor experience, frankly, that you need to consider. And I think it's it's becoming clear to banks as they think about you know how they're going to spend their tech budgets in the coming years, when they look at the gap between what's out there in the market and what they can credibly deliver, I think they're being effectively forced by the market to consider bringing in wealth tech firms uh, as, as partners, whether it's for a particular piece of their technology stack or whether it's for a front-end application that, that they can that they can plug in. I think that's really more and becoming more and more common. And um, uh, and so I think that's just going to continue, you know, as these as as firms like Adapar work with uh, some of the larger clients out there. You know, our, our experience has been we started seriously serving what we would call enterprise clients at the larger private banks, I would say three or four years ago. And we went from kind of zero at that time. We now have about 20 and you know it is a it is a it's definitely a somewhat different client base they have different needs uh, as you can imagine they're more complex the, the the sort of number of people who have to access the system is a lot higher and so we spent a lot of time and effort in basically building out our technology to be sort of enterprise ready to be able to satisfy some of the some of their kind of compliance and reporting and scalability that an enterprise needs and so um I think as fintechs like Adapar really do that, and there are a few others that are also taking that path, I think it'll become more and more clear to the private banks of the world 
that these are technologies that are really valuable, the ability to aggregate information across all your clients, you're never going to be able to build that out on your own. And you just need to have something like this. And so the, you know, at someone like Adapar becomes an obvious part. Right, right. So let's let's hope, uh, you know, this is going to pan out this way. But uh, yes. let's see. I was talking in my book. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So but you know, f- fair enough, it makes sense, right? So yep. You have worked in wealth management and asset management globally. I also would like to know from, let's say, a regional perspective, when you look at the U.S. versus Switzerland, you spend a lot of time here as well. So where do you think the U.S. leads the way in terms of wealth management slash technology ad- adoption, right? Uh, or is this in terms of products or the business models, technology itself, or is there something else uh, versus maybe other parts of the world whether it's Singapore or Switzerland, and where do you think that uh, the U.S. leads the way, where the things could be better? Yeah, um, well, it's interesting. I, I have to say at the beginning, I'm not as familiar with with Asia. I think that you know, from what I kind of read and understand, there's a lot of extremely interesting things being done in a lot of markets there. But I'm not as I, I'm more familiar with the U.S. and Europe, so maybe I'll kind of All right, yeah. focus my thoughts there. The thing about the U.S that I think is attractive from an innovation perspective is that number one, it's obviously a very big market. You know, it's probably a ballpark figure that US is sort of the same size as all of the EU, more or less. So, so that makes things easier because you don't have to go after each individual country. It's just one big one, one big country. And uh, the other thing is that the the environment it's a much more fragmented market as 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 you know. So if you think about the wealth management space, for example, there are some large brokers uh, like a Morgan Stanley or UBS in the US or Merrill Lynch, but there's a very, very large and fast-growing independent um, wealth management space, very vibrant. There are lots and lots of regional banks. Uh, there are lots of sort of independent players. And so you you just have a lot of clients that you can experiment with. And so I, th- I think that makes things a lot simpler uh, in terms of innovating than if you were, say, in Switzerland where or in other parts of continental Europe where there are typically a handful of large banks that sort of dominate the market. And, and so really, you have to get in with one of those banks. If you can't, you really kind of can't get started. So, so I, I feel like that's a real advantage for the US. I mean, it has disadvantages in that the some of the sort of centralized infrastructure can be a little chaotic, I think, in, in the US. And some of the ways mm-hmm. that things work are, are much clearer in Europe because, you know, three or four banks got together, set up a rational system, and that's how it works. You know, in America, there's thousands of them and all these states involved. But I think it really helps on the, in, in the innovation side to have so many different potential clients with different business models. There's lots of people to go uh, pitch your idea to. And I, I think that's just really helpful. All right, brilliant. So where are you as Adapar on your journey? I know that you raised a lot of money last year. So maybe you can also say, what are you going to spend it on? And then uh, maybe maybe you already <laughs> yeah. spent it on the acquisition of the RSI. And then also, I think that's, uh, that's probably uh, a good plug to the news or the analysis I've seen. I think it was from Bain on M&A this year that, uh, or 2020 rather, that a lot of the companies are looking at capability acquisitions, right? Right. And uh, it's that was actually the biggest uh, factor last year, rather than maybe what it used to be, you know, new markets or or what have you in the past. So where where are you guys now? Well, we uh, as you said, um, we reached uh, we actually had a number of milestones uh, last year. One of the key metrics that we measure is the total um, amount of assets that we report on. That that that's a key metric for us. It's um, you know it's tied to our number of clients and revenue and 
and the data we're collecting. And uh, we surpassed $2 trillion in client assets last summer. So that was a big, that was a big move for us. And you know, a different way of thinking about that was um, we added client assets at the rate of around $10 billion per week on, uh, on, our, on, on the reporting side last year. Oh, wow. um, and yeah, so it, it's, it's uh, from a data perspective and scale, you know, we would be probably one of the biggest banks in the world if you just looked at the assets that we report on. Now, obviously, we're not managing those assets, so it's a very different economic model. But from a, from a size perspective, yeah, that's, it's, um, it's a very big platform that, 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 we, uh, that we have. And, uh, and you know, we now have about um, 420 people across uh, in, in California and Mountain View in New York City. And then in, and we have a third uh, major office in Salt Lake City. And uh, as you said, we announced a Series E $117 million raise in the fall. And that's really going to be used to continue to invest in the platform and to expand in a number of sort of adjacent areas. So for us, our, our core segments right now are the family office space, these independent wealth managers that we're called um, uh, RIAs here in the US, and then these uh, larger enterprise clients. Um, I would say that here, our product is pretty mature. Uh, I mean, you're always investing. You always need to keep reinvesting in it. But that that product, I think, is well understood. So really, the game there for us is about continuing to uh, grow our market share in each, each of those uh, each of those segments. The areas we're looking at to grow where some of the Series E money will be helpful. One is to expand outside the US. Most of our clients are US-based, I'd say probably 85%. We, we do have clients in Canada, Latin America, and Europe, but it's been more, I would say, sort of inbound. So we're now looking to be more systematic in our, uh, both in Canada and in Europe, we're, we're going to be setting up a hub this year in Edinburgh. And I think we are likely to, we haven't decided yet, but I think we're likely to actually have some boots on the ground, so to speak, in, in Europe at some point in the next in the next year or so. And I would see Asia coming after that. So international expansion will be a big deal for us. And uh, we're also looking at new client segments that are related to wealth management. We're looking at the more institutional space as well as asset managers. And I, I would say RCI, to some extent, the acquisition we just made tucks into that because uh, it's a, um, for those who don't know, it's a relatively small firm, but they specialized in um, liquidity analytics. So effectively, they can uh, work with a client's portfolio and give them a sense as to their liquidity profile today and likely and likely liquidity profile going forward, depending on certain market events. And, and that's very helpful for clients who have a mix of liquid and illiquid assets to kind of understand as the money comes in and goes out and what you know where they're likely to have opportunities to make more investments or, or where they might need to raise liquidity over time. And so that's a that sort of liquidity analytics we think is a nice um, addition to it, the things we already do and will particularly be attractive to some of our family office clients, we think, but also um, the institutional client base. All right. Well, amazing. Uh, great, uh, great story. Great success story, right? So before we wrap up, I'd like to ask you just uh, two easy questions in a way. So even though the first one, I, I, I'd like to add something more there where I read an article on Sifted, which is a, a great online paper for startups in Europe. It's backed by DFT, etc. And there was an article about uh, from a VC investor talking about limelight chasers. And uh, the lady there was talking about the founders who say they read 100 books a year. <laughs> they listen to <laughs> 15, 15 podcasts. Yeah. They're on the cl clubhouse, you know, each room five times a day. Yeah. So stay away from those don't invest in those but nevertheless i'd like to ask you what's your favorite business book that you could recommend and uh you know i do also hold uh, live events on clubhouse and sometimes we talk about these books because uh why not uh you know it's always good to take a pause and uh well, ho hopefully read the book and, and learn something new so 
it doesn't have to be a hundred, you know, <laughs> or anything, any, anything like this, but or a recent, but something that you would like to share with uh, with people. Yeah, no, happy to. Well, I I have to confess, I, I recently uh, joined Clubhouse myself, although I can't say I'm a I'm an active user. So a very interesting, but very interesting platform for sure. In terms of business books, well, I'm I'm going to say it, and I I was going to say this anyways, even before you made this comment. I'm actually not a big business book reader, which I know maybe sounds funny coming from someone who worked at McKinsey all that time. But I, I was never really a fan of of most of them. I, I always sort of felt like. There's a little too much of people telling you, you know, all the like everything looked obvious and amazing about what this person did. And you kind of felt, I'm not sure that, you know, this person had my experience because, you know, I just found things a lot tougher than that and wasn't so easy. And you make it sound like it's obvious and simple. But but I will say the book that I that I do like that it's not a new one, but I, I think it's a it's a sort of a, it's a classic is um, it's called The Hard Thing About Hard Things, which is written by uh, Ben Horowitz. And since you're a clubhouse guy, you probably know that. Yeah. Um, yeah, he, was, uh, he had a long career as a CEO in Silicon Valley, and then he went off to uh, co-found um, Andreessen Horowitz, which I think is now called A16Z, and I think is a lead investor in in, uh, in uh, Clubhouse. But I, I would sort of recommend the book to uh, folks listening to the podcast because it's a very honest read on what it's like to be in Silicon Valley from someone who's been there for a long time. And he talks about um, having been a CEO and all the challenges. What I liked about it was he gives you a sense of what it really feels like, the ups and the downs, and that there are a lot of downs, and that sometimes you try your best and you don't necessarily get to the right answer. And how do you trade off? You know, how do you make difficult choices when there's, when there's not an obvious answer? And so I, I think I, I always appreciate that because it just felt like uh, it was much more real you know, to me than some of these other books. And um, I got a lot out of the different chapters of how he thinks about leadership, how he thinks about recruiting, because again, it just felt much more honest on the problems that, that you actually face trying to get something going as opposed to the sort of some of the more rah-rah books uh, that are out there. So yes, hard thing about hard things. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, I must say this is probably the number one recommended book on this podcast. So uh, <laughs> is that right? It, That's it, funny. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't matter, but it's uh, it's turned it's like the third time I you know uh, th- this happened, but it, it's. Uh, that's why I already listened to it. I listened to it as an audiobook. Ah. But uh, you know, it's uh, it's, a, it's absolutely spot on, right? It's realistic, or at least it feels realistic. I wasn't there when yeah, you know yeah. when these things happened, but it's uh, more balanced than some of the self congratulatory books that you have out there, right? Yep, totally. So uh, I understand completely your point. So check out everyone this book. Uh, we keep on repeating it until everybody has read it. So <laughs> um, so that's clear. So. Um, my last question is, Alistair, so where do interested parties reach you and what kind of people would you like to hear from most? You can reach us either. You can email us at uh, inquiries at com, or you can ping me uh, on LinkedIn. You know, I'm always happy to uh, hear from folks. I think you know, for, for us, obviously, if there are, if there are folks listening here who um, who are interested in learning more about the software as a potential client, very happy to talk about that and and what our capabilities are in a little more detail. And and otherwise, there are people who are interested in the wealth tech space, maybe have things they're doing in Europe or doing things in the U.S. that that could be relevant for us. Always happy to uh, to learn more about the space and see what's happening. You know, there's so many. So many new things being launched every day that it's impossible to keep track of it all. So uh, I, I kind of welcome the chance to try to stay current. Um, so happy to happy to take those. Just ping me on LinkedIn or, as I said, re- reach out to us by email. All right, great. Well, thank you very much, Alistair, and good luck to Adapar. Thank you so much, Rudy. Great to chat with you. Thank you for listening to Voice of Fintech podcast. If you haven't already, check out also voiceoffintech.com 
where you will find all the episodes and additional resources related to the podcast. You can also subscribe to Voice of Fintech on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or any other podcast app that you like. If you have any suggestions on the topics or guests, or how to make this podcast better for you, please email us at info at Happy to hear from you. Thank you.